the scriptures this morning are Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And there's eight verses in between there. And I'm not sure what all the pastor is going to do with that. But one of the things that I noticed this morning as we were singing the, the hymns and the choruses is that those hymns and choruses harmonize very well with this passage of scripture. And so I hope you notice that too. Um, it blesses my heart to know that Pastor Sid and Julie prayerfully planned to prepare our hearts for hearing God's word this morning. And I pray that we also would come with hearts and minds open to what God has to say to us. So stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. The word of the Lord. Well, to answer your question, Dean, I'm not going to do much with those verses in between. So, I almost thought about leaving this out, but I'm going to share it. Um, have any of you ever seen The Karate Kid? The, okay. So if you're familiar with that, for those of you who haven't, I'll, I'll try to explain. There's... There's a, he's a high school boy. He's just moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, trying to adapt to a new high school, not getting along with some of the, the uh, popular kids. And these, some of the guys in this popular group know karate, and he takes a beating at least once from these guys. And he and his mom live in an apartment complex, and the, um, the, care, the I guess, custodian, caretaker, handyman, Mr. Miyagi, knows karate. So Daniel asked Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And Mr. Miyagi agrees to do that, but he says, you have to do whatever I say without question. And so Daniel shows up for his first day of karate lessons, and Mr. Miyagi says, and he has this collection of old cars. He says, I want you to wash the cars and then wax them. Okay, wax on, wax off. Yeah. <laughs> and then he wants him to uh, paint the fence, and there are wide boards and narrow boards, okay? Okay, wide boards right hand, paint the fence. Narrow boards left hand, paint the fence. And then he has him... He has this extensive deck kind of structure, and he says, I want you to sand the floor. So he has to sand all this, okay? And then paint the house. And Daniel, I don't know how, this is probably a few days into the karate lessons, says, fed up. He's sick of being... Mr. Miyagi's slave and doing all this work for him. And Mr. Miyagi then pulls him aside 
Basically what it is, it's a lesson in muscle memory. It's so he can defend himself against an attack. All these moves. And he demonstrates it to him quite clearly. So all these things that Daniel had to do, that he, he had no idea what this was about. It seemed like he was just, Mr. Miyagi was having him do all the chores he didn't want to do himself. Turned out to be for his good. There were lessons in karate. He was, he was working muscle memory into his life. There is a divine purpose behind everything God's children experience. C.S. Lewis writes this, In Hamlet, a branch breaks and Ophelia is drowned. Did she die because the branch broke or because Shakespeare wanted her to die at that point in the play? Either, both, whichever you prefer. The alternative suggested by the question is not a real alternative at all, once you have grasped that Shakespeare is making the whole play. In other words, he's going to do what he wants to to bring the, the play to the conclusive end that he's determined. Folks, God is more sovereign than Shakespeare. He is writing the play so that it comes out the way he wants it to. That means that he orchestrates the events and characters in whatever way he desires to achieve his predetermined end. And he uses the free will of man to fulfill his purpose. So this today, Romans 8.28, is a promise for circumstances that we don't understand. And the reason I included verse 18 in this today is because it speaks of suffering. And it's when we suffer that we're inclined to ask these questions. Why me? Why now? Why this? Ever been there? Followers of Jesus have a promise that does not give specific answers to those questions, but that should be an encouragement to us that God does not allow us to suffer for nothing just because he's sovereign and can mess with us somehow. Followers of Jesus have this promise. So, let's break this promise down. Romans 8.28 Paul begins by saying, And we know. There is certainty in the promise. We know. We do know. It's not we think, it's not we hope, but we know. And that should apply on a, purpose, on a personal level and on a corporate level. I should know, we should know. Paul is speaking of himself and the Roman congregation that he's writing to. So I know, Paul says, we know. Paul is really saying that all Christians should know this. So, we know includes you and me. Right now, today. This is a universal truth that Paul assumes all Christians should understand. In fact, that is something that should set us apart from non-believers. We should deal with the stuff of life differently because we view every circumstance as being under the sovereign control of God 
and as such having a purpose that in the big picture is good. Amen? Right? Okay? Because very often in the short term, we can't see the good. It's in the big picture. Second, there is totality in the promise. We know that in all things, there is totality in the promise. The Greek word translated all things means all things. Okay? There's nothing hidden there. There's no tricky language. The Greek word translated all things means all things. All means everything that affects our lives. And the all is under God's control. And he causes all to work for our good. Now, I think it's much easier for us to understand how God could use pleasant things for our good rather than painful things. Challenging things, difficult things. Probably because we enjoy the pleasant things and we know, we all know that good things are good for you. We all know that. But we struggle with the idea that bad or hard, what we call bad or hard or unpleasant things can be good for us. And if you remove God from the equation, that might be true. But with God, even the most painful, disastrous, devastating experiences can be used for our good. So all things means that nothing falls outside God's control and ability to use in a way that is ultimately, in the big picture, good. Remember uh, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Not Mary and Joseph, Joseph, but... Joseph, Jacob's son, Joseph. He gets thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt, falsely accused and put in jail for something he didn't do. Then he helps a guy out in jail and said, hey, remember me to the Pharaoh, but the guy forgot. And he stays in jail a little longer. Eventually, God gets him out of jail because, because he had a relationship with God and Pharaoh was having some weird dreams that he needed some interpretation for. Joseph gets out of jail. He ends up being elevated to this high position of authority in Egypt. Well, that's pretty good, but the ultimate good was that he saved his family when, when this huge drought impacted that entire area. So that the people... God's people, the Hebrews, the Jews, had, had the potential of continuing to exist. They weren't going to starve to death in the drought. Who could have seen that coming? The ultimate illustration is that of Jesus going to the cross. Hey, the Messiah was not supposed to die. The Messiah was supposed to get on his white charger horse with sword in hand, boot the Romans out of Israel, and let these people be free once again. In fact, they're still struggling with that idea today. There are Jews who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because he didn't fit the picture. 
He died on a cross. How can that be right? That's not supposed to happen to the Messiah. And yet, it's because of what Jesus did that we can be saved because we, it, that we are saved. I have this, I don't know if I've ever worn it around here. I have this t-shirt that my daughter got me. And it's got all these superheroes lined up across it. You know, there's Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and Iron Man and, you know, all those. And Jesus is sitting in the middle and he's saying, and that's how I saved the world. So what looked so bad when Jesus went to the cross, in the big picture, turned out for good. The next thing we need to understand is there is synergy in the promise. Work together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those. That um, work together, in the Greek word there is sunergeo. Um, It's the word, our word synergy comes from. So synergy is the working together of two or more things, people or organizations, especially when the result is greater than the sum of its individual capabilities. Taken individually, the events and circumstances God allows in our lives may not, in and of themselves, appear to be of any value or good to the Christian. But Paul does not say that each event is good or even that each incident will produce which is good. He informs us that all of these events working together produce what is good. To illustrate, and I'm not a baker, but the ingredients which go into a cake are not very tasty if you eat them individually, unless you like spoons full of sugar or something. I've tried vanilla. So flour, sugar, I don't know, eggs, uh, salt, maybe baking powder, um, shortening or oil or whatever. The spices that you throw in, they're not something that you want to eat one ingredient at a time. But mix those things all together in the right proportions Throw them, in the, throw them in the oven and bake them, and you have a pretty delicious treat. And each event in our life is like one ingredient in a cake. It may not seem good by itself, but when mixed by God with the other correct events, it will surely produce what is good. Paul speaks here of God's sovereignty in terms of his choosing and blending all of our experiences in such a way as to produce that which, again, in the big picture is good. This means that we cannot judge the goodness of God's work until his program is finished. There's a a poem I want to read to you. It's called The Weaver by Grant Colfax Tullar. And he says, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors, he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I and in I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. 
Have you ever seen a tapestry? Yeah, the backside doesn't look great. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who choose to walk with him. I found this quote from a pastor who said, While God permits things to happen which displease him, he does not allow anything to happen which is contrary to his divine purpose. God often brings into our lives those things which are painful, which cause us to groan. Sometimes those unpleasant experiences are the result of our own folly or sin. We just make dumb choices. Other times we may suffer through no fault or failure of our own. Jesus' suffering was not due to any sin on his part. The chastening of the Father is not necessarily that which we have experienced because of our sin or disobedience. I want to share this passage of Scripture with you from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And the writer says, And have you forgotten... And, excuse me, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. <clears throat> Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined... And everyone undergoes goes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Amen. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Think, think for a moment of the incredible power of God suggested and required by the truth of his sovereignty. Since all things work together then the more things included in the category of all things, are you following me here? Since all things work together, then the more things included in the category of all things, the greater God's power and control must be. Can you imagine all the things God has to manage? It's difficult for anyone to orchestrate several different Things at a time. Just try, remember the old pat the head rugby. I tried juggling in the gym. Oh boy. But God controls all the events of the life of every believer. What? I mean, just think of a group this size and multiply that by time. And, and God is orchestrating 
the events of the lives of believers all around the planet. More than this, God controls what he is doing in the life of one believer in such a way that it will harmonize with what he is doing in the lives of all the rest. Such a task is beyond human comprehension. It is a task only God with infinite power could accomplish. The fourth thing, there is an outcome in the promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who have who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For the good. There's an outcome in the promise. The first thing we need to know at this point is a proper understanding of what good is. That's where, we, that's where I think we run up against it sometimes. Especially in our culture. Because we think of good in all, generally in terms of health, wealth, safety, comfort, everything's coming up roses. That's our definition of what's good. I want to share this illustration with you that I found. The writer says, It was back during the Great Depression and my grandfather was a carpenter. But on this particular day, he was at the railroad station sealing up crates filled with clothes. His, co- his church was shipping to an orphanage in China. On his way home, he reached into his shirt pocket to get his glasses, but they were gone. When he mentally retraced his steps, he realized that what must have happened. His glasses had slipped out of his pocket and fallen into one of the crates while he was nailing it shut. And now his brand new glasses were headed for China. The Great Depression was at its height, and Grandpa had six children. He had spent $20 for those glasses that very morning and was upset by the thought of having to buy another pair. It's not fair, he told God as he drove home in frustration. I've been very faithful in giving of my time and money to your work, and now this. A year later, the director of the orphanage was on a furlough in the United States, visiting all the churches that supported his work in China, so he came to speak one Sunday at my grandfather's small church. The missionary began by thanking the people for their faithfulness in supporting the orphanage. But most of all, he said, I must thank you for the glasses you sent last year. You see, the communists had just swept through the orphanage, destroying everything, including my glasses. I was desperate. Even if I had the money, there was no way of replacing the glasses in my part of China. Along with not being able to see well, I had terrible headaches every day, so my co-workers and I were in much prayer about this. Then your crates arrived. When we removed the covers, we found a pair of glasses lying on top. The missionary paused long enough to let his words sink in. Then he continued. Folks, when I tried on the glasses, it was as though they had been custom-made just for me. I don't know why you included those glasses, but I want to thank you for doing so from the bottom of my heart. The people listened, happy for the miraculous coincidence of the glasses. But they thought they had, that he had surely confused their church with another. There weren't any glasses on the list of items they had shipped overseas. But sitting quietly in the back, with tears streaming down his face, an old man, my grandfather, just an ordinary carpenter, suddenly realized that the master carpenter had used him in an extraordinary way. 
Asaph, who wrote some of the Psalms, struggled with the issue of what is really good. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph began his psalm by affirming that God is good. But he himself had almost slipped. For but, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So we'll see in, in these verses, there are problems so vexing, so unanswerable that he almost lost faith, almost returned to the world, almost decided wickedness paid, almost decided that you have to be crooked to succeed. He goes on, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. <laughs> have we ever looked? Yeah. Oh man, they have it so good. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Now we make a turn. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign God my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph's first words were, God is good to Israel. He is also good to those who are pure in heart. But Asaph was wrong in his definition of good. For he thought good must be understood in terms of peaceful prosperity and a comfortable life. He thought of good in terms of pleasure and the absence of pain and more in terms of this present life than in terms of eternity. Asaph thought this way until he came to the sanctuary of God. Then he began to view life from the divine perspective and from the vantage point of eternity rather than in terms of this present age. God got his mind right. From the divine perspective, the the good life of the wicked 
was incredibly uncertain and short. He saw, he now saw, Asaph now saw good in terms of intimacy with God. He recognized that while his suffering, he recognized that while his sufferings drew him nearer, nearer to God, the prosperity of the wicked only drew them farther from him. Asaph's definition of good changed from a warm, fuzzy feeling to enjoying God's presence now and for all eternity. He saw that if suffering draws one nearer to God, it is not evil, but good. He recognized that if prosperity in the absence of pain turns one from God, that is evil. His definition of good made the difference. We must be very careful to define good as Asaph came to understand it in terms of eternity and in terms of intimacy with God. If you are a Christian, the good which God promised you will surely be accomplished. If you choose to obey God, you will surely suffer tribulation as Joseph in the Old Testament did. And if you want to know the New Testament perspective on that, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. God's hand is at work. God's purpose and promises are certain to be fulfilled. In disobedience, you will fail to experience the joy and hope which God gives to those who trust and obey Him. Obedience. Hmm. See, that leads us to the next part. There are conditions to this promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. To those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The conditions, love God. What does it mean to love God? We can sum that up in one word. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And then called according to his purpose. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There it is, all things, everything. And in Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Here's the purpose to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. There's conditions to this promise. We're to love God. We're to be called according to his purpose, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, Jesus. Stuart Briscoe in his commentary says this, it is, it is eternal rather than temporal good which God has in mind. It is eternal rather than temporal good, which God has in mind. He's speaking of this verse. He works according to his purpose, which is far grander than the alleviation of unpleasantness of the present or a guarantee of plain sailing under cloudless skies in the foreseeable future. He is in the good business of making redeemed sinners like their elder brother 
the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's about in our lives, through all that we deal with. God can use each one of us in extraordinary ways when he makes all things work together for good. Don't give up. In spite of how dark things seem or how much chaos there appears to be, God is in control. And what is meant for evil will, in the big picture, in God's design, be turned for good. Do we believe that? I hope so. We have to. We have to rest in that. How would we make it otherwise? Father, we come to you today. This is... uh, I mean, this is, a, I think, one of those passages that is sometimes misquoted and often misunderstood. And we, when we think about all things working together for good, we tend to think of it in a more temporal sense. And, and our, our definition of good often needs redefining. And so as we've worked our way through this, passage today, Lord God. I pray that you revealed some things to us maybe that we've not understood about this before. And that we'll understand that you are at work in all the circumstances of our lives, especially those hard ones, those painful ones, those ones that make us groan for our ultimate good, according to your plan and purpose. And Lord God, to understand too that this promise applies to those who love you, who are obedient to you, and are called according to your purpose, that we would be submissive to the work of your Holy Spirit and the truth of Scripture in our lives to mold us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and then to trust as we meet those conditions that you will do what you've promised to make all this stuff of our lives come together ultimately for our good and, Father, for your honor and for your glory. Thank you again for the truth of Scripture and how it speaks to where we're at right now. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.